we're in the book of Hebrews, and so we've been studying the book of Hebrews, and I mentioned this last week, but I'd like to mention it again, because repetition's not bad. It's a good thing. Uh, we'll be in Hebrews today and next Sunday, and then we usually observe an Advent time, and we'll be through the first three chapters of Matthew. Uh, so we'll look at chapter 1, 2, and 3 over the month of December, um, and so we'll kind of take a little bit of a break from Hebrews, but we'll be back into Hebrews uh, starting back in January. We'll carry that up until we'll make a, a nice, wonderful run into Easter, and so you may be saying, wait a minute, we're not through Christmas yet. I know, but we have a game plan. We're super excited about what the Lord is doing because if you haven't already seen, we value God's word around here. We are grateful for God's word and we want to spend as much time in it as we possibly can. I'm just not that creative. You don't want to hear from me. I think you'd rather hear from God's word. We have a strong belief that God's word is our authoritative guide. And there's a reason why we say authoritative, but we believe that we should draw all of our understanding uh, from scripture. So that's why we spend a lot of time in so we've been in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in chapter 10 today. As you turn to chapter 10, um, I remember our family, our first family vehicle. You know you, you know, you get married and all of a sudden your cars you had aren't sufficient. So you're like, okay, we need to get a family car. And I remember Lauren and I, when we knew that we were uh, pregnant with our first uh, child, we went out and our first, well, I guess we kind of had a family vehicle, but this was like, this was it. We are a family now, and it was a Honda Pilot. Woohoo! best vehicle at the time I'd ever owned. But nonetheless, I had to get rid of my Jeep. That's a whole other story. That was hard. But we got a Honda Pilot. And this vehicle, we brought Avery home um, after she was born. We brought Everett home in this vehicle as well after he was born. So we drove it, and we drove it well. <laughs> we used it well. There's a lot of memories in that car, good and bad. There was a frustrating thing about that car. The electric windows would break often. The window regulator, you're like, what is that? That's the mechanism that brings the window up and down at the push of a button. Now, we all agree, that's a wonderful invention. I actually am old enough to remember what it's like to Roll down the window, right? If you're on the driver's side, hold on a second. You got to lean over there, right? Wonderful invention. Well, the frustrating thing about this was this. There, it, the, the window regulator, this mechanism that does all that work, in the Honda Pilot was insufficiently constructed. It was not the best put together <laughs> window regulator I'd ever seen. And because of this insufficient construction, it would break. After it would break, I would take lots of time. I would rip apart the door. I would order the new regulator. I would install it only to have it break a few years later. Now, with four windows and each one breaking so often, well, you do the math, all right? <laughs> It felt like I was replacing these regulators every week. I did it so often that I actually started to time myself because I was like, well, I'm, I'm getting pretty good at this. So I started to time myself and see how long it took, got into a little bit of competition with myself. I'd say, all right, Lauren, you ready? I'm going. And then I would run out there, time it, and I got pretty good at it. But the insufficiency boiled down to one tiny little crucial part that held the window in place. It was made of plastic. 
That is no match for the Arizona heat. And this little bitty crucial piece of plastic would constantly break because it simply could not bear up the weight of the window with all the heat of Arizona. And it was a very frustrating, debilitating thing to go through all the trouble of ripping the door apart, replacing it, spending the money, knowing that it would not work. That I would be going through this process again in about a year or two due to its insufficiency. All it needed was someone to sacrifice a little bit of time, build a regulator with better material, perhaps a once and for all material that would last. You may be thinking, if you're visiting with us, what does this have to do with Hebrews? Well, this is kind of what the preacher has been preaching for the last few weeks, that Christ is better who actually sacrificed himself as a better sacrifice. See, his sacrifice can hold up under the weight. His sacrifice is once and for all. You see, Christ is not insufficient. He doesn't take us halfway there in forgiveness. His work is final, comprehensive, and yes, it works. His body is of a better quality. His sacrifice is greater. His sacrifice, dare I say, is better. This morning, let's continue in thinking through this in Hebrews chapter 10, that's serving as the, the summary of what all that the preacher has been talking about in terms of the priesthood. Now, chapter 10, we're going to look at the first 18 verses, but we're going to section it off. We're going to look at the first four verses to start with. So chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has been a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshiper, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. Verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now let's just pause there for a second. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you're like, yes, preacher, yes, yes, this is what we have been talking about. But as a good preacher, he takes these first four verses and he provides really in a very succinct way a summary of everything he has been talking about since chapter 8. Since he picked up this priesthood here in these few verses, he tells us the major points of what he has called the old system. We know this to be the old sacrificial system, right? If you don't, aren't familiar with that, spend a lot of glorious time in the book of Leviticus. You'll see all that was wrapped up in this old system. He's not only talked about the sacrificial system, but he's also talked about the priestly duties, the one who had to go through the repetition over and over again. He's been highlighting that since chapter 8. And here he provides a very succinct summary for us. 
And really what the preacher wants us to walk away with, and for me, I don't know about you, this is so helpful. Just, what, what do you want me to know? Just summarize it, boil it down for me. What really is the insufficiency you've been talking about? Well, here's two things the preacher wants us to hear. He wants us to grab that the old system with its repeated sacrifice, he wants us to understand. He highlights again that it is repeated. With that, he says it cannot make one perfect. What does this mean? It cannot completely forgive, and it cannot bring us, make us fully righteous in God's presence. This has been said so many times, but this is serving as a summary. If there's one thing I want you to hear, the repeated nature of the sacrifice reminds us that it cannot make perfect. See, the argument is rather simple, isn't it? If it would have, it would have ceased. You just love the logical, easy conclusion. Well, hey, if the whole system actually could work, and if it wasn't insufficient, if there wasn't something about it that would just break and not really fulfill all that needed to, then it would have ceased. If the window regulator I kept ordering actually worked, I wouldn't have to keep doing it over and over and over again. So the argument for the preacher is rather simple. He wants us to hear, here's what you need to understand. Its repetition declares that it cannot fully atone. What does that mean? It cannot make perfect as the text says. It cannot bring about full, comprehensive forgiveness, make us able to be in the presence of God. Remember the scene, the first section and the second section, no one could enter except the priest, the high priest at that, once a year? Just a visual reminder in the repetition makes it so simple. It simply cannot fully, comprehensively provide complete forgiveness. It just can't. This, for the preacher, leads into the second major observation that he has been talking about over and over and over again. The major uh, observation that we learn from, as he's been calling, shadows. It's this. It's the old system by its nature was designed, and what we learn from it, what does it remind us of? It reminds us of our sins. And in this reminder, it speaks really loudly. Here's what it says. It is impossible for shed blood from bulls and goats to take away sins. It's just impossible. You see, the shadowy thing that apparently has something good to it, part of it was to teach us a few things. It cannot make perfect. It's repeated. And because you have to go every year, it reminds that our sins are not fully dealt with because of the insufficient nature of the shed blood of bulls and goats. Now, I would think that these are pretty straightforward. Now, you and I didn't grow up in the old system, but I think we can kind of grab and see, okay, preacher, those are really straightforward. I mean, honestly, they're obvious. <laughs> they're, they're fairly obvious. So I think anyone reading this, it would be really hard for them to argue because these observations are clear. But perhaps you're going, wait a second. If, this, if the law and, and all of this is a shadow of the good things to come, well, preacher, what are the good things? Because this old system feels crushing, difficult. Perhaps this is what is hard for them. 
well, at least this is tangible. At least I can get my hands dirty and do something. So what do you mean there's good? Well, let's keep, let's keep reading to see if we can figure out what the good thing is. Now, I suspect, I guess, you might already know what the good thing is. <laughs> but remember, chapter 10, these first 18 verses are serving as a summary of all that's been preached up to this point. So let's read the next section, verses 5 to 10, okay? So chapter, five, or chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Verse 9, then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is good news. This is a good thing. But listen how the preacher argues for this good thing. You see, the preacher doesn't break from his usual pattern, right? What does he do? He looks at the Old Testament. He uses the Old Testament to gain a better understanding of our current realities. Who knew the Old Testament has so much to offer for our understanding of today? But that's what he has been doing. It's been his consistent pattern. Here, he quotes Psalms 40, verses 6 to 8. Verses 5 to 7, he quotes the text directly. And then in 8 and 10, like a good preacher, he explains them. You see, the verses in Psalms 40, to get a little bit of context, they're actually serving as a corrective to people, and God's people specifically. It's kind of correcting their understanding of, you guessed it, the sacrificial system. The old system, the one he's been talking about. So back in Psalms 40, there's a corrective being laid out to say, hey, perhaps you should understand all of this stuff a little bit better. You see, what is being corrected is this, that it was not the sacrifice themselves that was necessary, but rather the expression of faith, the expression of repentance and obedience. Do you realize it took a tremendous amount of faith to say, okay, this is what the Lord has said, I will listen to it. To go get the unblemished land took a lot of faith, right? You're like, well, this has got a little mark on it, and surely the Lord will receive that. But in faith, you heard what God said, you grabbed the unblemished one, and it was an expression of, I trust and believe all that God has said. So I come and I bring this in faith that it will do what God has said it would do. I come repenting, acknowledging that I have done wrong. You see, wrapped up in the sacrifice themselves, and though they were many, was an expression of faith, an expression of obedience and repentance, and that God knows more than I know, and I have offended him. 
You see, Psalms 40 is, is helping them in the midst of the old system, helping them to see it a little bit more clearer. I mean, in light of that, doesn't it make sense that the preacher in Hebrews would do the same thing? Well, let me help you understand it even more clearer. So Psalms 40, with that intended use, it kind of makes it helpful here. It makes that intended use in Psalms 40 is really helpful to a group of people who are wanting to revert back to the old system. Revert back to an old system Believing that, oh, that's what is most pleasing to God. The activity, right? All the things I can get my hands to. And some of you really active people are like, oh, yeah, get my hands dirty. I'm doing stuff. And and there's a a group of people wanting to revert back to that system going, oh, well, well, this will be pleasing because the system, I'm doing something. Almost acting that the shadow would be better than the good thing. That the shadow would be more beneficial for them to commit to. Psalms 40 becomes a very helpful corrective to say, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Even in the old system, what was to be looked for was repentance, faith. And here, what is being pushed is Repentance and faith in the person and work of Christ. Why commit to the shadow when the good thing is in front of you? And by the way, I've argued for quite a while that the shadow was screaming and pointing to the good thing. You see, they're not too far off from those in Psalms 40, are they? Perhaps you and I aren't too far off from those in Psalms 40. Well, there's another interesting thing happening here. Did you notice, and even in my reading, I tried to overemphasize it, but did you notice who the preacher identifies as the speaker of these verses? Anyone take a guess? You can say it out loud. I'm happy to hear. Jesus, he, he says, Jesus said these things. And I don't know about you, I'm like, preacher... That's from Psalms 40. I'm fairly confident David wrote that, (laughs) carried along by the Holy Spirit, speaking on behalf of God. Do you notice that the preacher says, here's what Christ has said? He says that Christ said these words, though they are found in the Old Testament. And by the way, their belief of the Old Testament, which, which by the way, Hebrews is built upon, their belief of the Old Testament is they believe that God himself spoke those words. This is what compels the preacher to pull the Old Testament and say, oh, you really believe these are God's words? Well, guess what God has said? <laughs> Jesus is better. This is what has compelled him to bring the Old Testament to bear on their current realities. So they are a people who believe that God himself spoke the words that Moses, David, and the prophets wrote down. What do you mean, preacher? But the preacher believes these words came from the lips of Jesus as well. I mean, now logically speaking, this is true. After all, he's God. We can go there. But see, it's a little bit more pointed than that. You see, the preacher is putting a message in Jesus' mouth that says this, Trust my broken body and shed blood. It's as if Jesus comes up and preaches and says, Trust my 
my broken body and shed blood. I actually said it back in Psalms 40. I preached it there. I told you there. He puts the words in the mouth of Jesus and says, even Christ himself declared that you should put trust, faith, repentance in God's provision, his body. The same faith that compelled us to go through the acts every week is the same faith that compels us to trust in the comprehensive work of Christ on the lips of Jesus in Psalms 40. Jesus, in essence, is saying back in Psalms 40, repent, put faith in my body that was given to me to be a sacrifice for you. Look at this interaction with God. Sacrifices, offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus saying this was the intent all along, that all the shadowy things, all the shadowy things, and they were helpful and good, and we don't just throw that out, but it was pointing to something. Jesus says he, he gave me a body, and that's what I'll offer. I'll offer um, my sinless life and do what they cannot do. And he goes on to say, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God. I've come to do it. Jesus is preaching again. I did the will of God. Almost take it up with him. <laughs> this is how it was meant to be. He gave me a body, sacrifices that wasn't, in, that wasn't overall what was meant to happen. It was he gave me a body. I did the will of God. And he makes a connection, and that will is what brings our sanctification, our salvation. At least that's the preacher's interpretation of it, right? Verse 10. You see, because verses 8 to 10, the preacher kind of explains the message that is declared in Psalms 40, that he believes, Jesus said. Verses 8 to 10 says, he, Jesus, does away with the first in order to establish the second. Secondly, in, in verse 10, and by that will, his will to follow all that God had instructed him to do, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And here's the kicker, once for all. The shadowy things with their repetition was a bit crushing. And Jesus, apparently from Psalms 40, is preaching, no, my body is what's going to be laid out and I'm going to do the will of God. And by me doing the will of God, that's actually what will sanctify you. You see, Christ does away with the first here, meaning the old system, to establish the second. Not to insult your intelligence, but perhaps it's wise to say, well, what's the second? Let's just be really clear that we are sanctified through the broken body, shed blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. That's the second. And quite frankly, there's very little comparison between those two. <laughs> it's a shadow. It teaches us how glorious the second is. But that's the second that we are sanctified, or you may say holyfied, if you will. It's the same word, that we are holyfied through Christ. We are made holy positionally before God through Christ's broken body and his shed blood. His shed blood was the emphasis last week, but it's still in play here. Here, the body's being offered the broken body. You see, there's just no other way. Brothers and sisters, and those visiting, I cannot state enough how center, how center these realities are in the person and work of Christ. 
This is, we could dare say, the center of our, here's a fancy word, soteriology. Our belief of how is man saved, this is the center of it. Christ and Christ alone. That we are made holy by the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. There is just no other way. There is no other means. There is no other mechanism. You know why? Because those mechanisms will always break when they bear up under the weight of our sin. Those window regulators always broke because they could not bear up under the difficulty and heat of the Arizona sun. See, there is no other mechanism because they won't work. They're insufficient. They will always break. Well, the preacher moves on. Let's look at 11 through 14. This is, this is so good, 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Here we have the priestly offering kind of in a comparison to Christ's offering. You see, the preacher is so good at what he is doing. He actually further defends what he has been saying, and he's doing that by offering up another summary through a compare and contrast, right? Compare and contrast lists oftentimes help to reveal some incredible things. He compares the priest's offering to Christ's offering. Here we learn a few things that the priest's stands. I took the liberty to just underline it so you could see it. Look at the comparison. The priest stands while Christ sits. Even that alone. The priest so busy with his work daily, 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 busy, busy, work, 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 and Christ sits down. Isn't it good to just sit down after a long, hard day? Unfortunately, knowing that we got to get up tomorrow. Christ sits down, and where does he sit down? At the right hand of God. The most authoritative position that anyone could be in. A position that no priest dare go sit. That none of us dare go sit. But our Savior, our priest, our heavenly high priest sits. The priest repeatedly offers the same sacrifice while Christ offers a single sacrifice. And just to make it real plain, once and for all. (laughs) That's what single means. But I think just land a little bit better. Oh, yeah, once and for all. That kind of rolls off the tongue. Here they're repeatedly offering the same sacrifice while Christ does one once and for all. Why does the priest do the repeated offering? Well, because of another comparison. You see, the priest offering can do what? Never take away sin. This is why it has to be repeated. Sure, the atonement was made, but the problem has been it's not been fully, comprehensively made. So that's what required 
repetition. To remind us that we needed a better sacrifice. Well, Christ's offering on the other side, perfected for all time, those being sanctified. Brothers and sisters, there's just no comparison. Look at the text. Look at the, the contrast between the two. They are so great. And in their uh, vast difference, it declares loudly the superior nature of Christ's person and work. You see, the comparison is intended to scream how much more glorious Christ's offering is. You see, it's the word finality, the once and for all time, that actually seems to capture the contrast most accurately. Just the, the, the simple nature of its finalness, its once and for allness. You see, Christ's work upon the cross accomplished what was needed that the old system of the priestly sacrifice could not do. What is that? A single sacrifice once and for all. You see, it's the singularity of the sacrifice of Christ that also declares that Christ's broken body, his shed blood, it actually accomplished forgiveness. It actually accomplished a full atonement. Why? Because it was single. All of this is seen in that singularity of his sacrifice. It completed fully, comprehensively what was needed. You know what I find interesting about this comparison as well? It's this. The repeated sacrifice could not take away sin, right? Repetition, I'll get it at one point, and finally it'll, it'll work through, right? That's what practice makes perfect, we hear. So we oh, repeat it, I'll keep doing it, but this repeated sacrifice could not take away sin. But here's what's interesting. The single sacrifice of Christ continues to deal with sin. I find that encouraging, that the repeated nature of the other sacrifice cannot take away sin, but the single sacrifice of Christ actually continues to deal with sin. Here in this summary, we actually see a pretty comprehensive sanctifying work of Christ that no priest could do. You see, back in verse 10, we learn that Christ's sacrifice, his broken body, it makes us positionally holy before God. But if you catch it in 14, here it's emphasizing an ongoing work of sanctification that comes by the sacrifice of Christ, those being sanctified. The single sacrifice continually works. The continual repetition of sacrifice never works. Fully take away sin. This is just how wonderful Christ is. You see, the sacrifice of Christ, the past event of his broken body, it continues to work even now. The single sacrifice continues to work. Oh, that's good. It's good for me. I like to keep things a little simple. And the single sacrifice of Christ continues to work in my heart today. Praise the Lord for that. What incredible truths that we're looking at this morning. But let's see more. Let's see one more thing that the preacher in his summary pulls out. Chapter 10, verses 15 to 18, all right? And the Holy Spirit, well now, oh, Holy Spirit's getting involved. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after 
saying, Holy Spirit says something? This is the covenant that I will make with them. After these days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The preacher further defends what he has been saying. He does this by identifying the good old Holy Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit gets involved. The Holy Spirit bears witness. The preacher seems to believe that the Holy Spirit has said what the preacher is saying. What has the preacher been saying? That Christ's person and work is superior. He believes the Holy Spirit testified to that. That the Holy Spirit said that somewhere. You're like, well, when did the Holy Spirit declare that? Well, as the preacher has been doing, he says, let's look at the Old Testament. He shows that the Holy Spirit has been bearing witness to all the realities that he's talked about. He says he did that in Jeremiah 31. Well, this is fascinating because this isn't the first time that the preachers brought up Jeremiah 31. What's significant about that text? This is where we learn about the new covenant being promised. We looked at it a few weeks ago. You can go back and look at those messages to kind of hear the ins and outs of that. But what we learn from Jeremiah 31 is that a new covenant was promised that Christ brings about. There's a couple things about the new covenant that were so significant. But the first time that the preacher quoted it, he was saying that God said it. And now when he brings it up again, he's saying the Holy Spirit was as well bearing witness when he said these things. Here is yet another declaration that Christ is superior in his person and word. The preacher is saying, I'm not just the one preaching this. Everybody is preaching this. And not just anybody. You see, Christ is so significant that the Godhead declares it. Isn't that wonderful? Notice what is being said again here in Jeremiah 31. What's being bear witness to? What's being said, that the new covenant brought about through Christ's broken body, shed blood, there's a couple promises. One, heart transformation, that our hearts will be transformed, right? Putting the word into our hearts and our minds so that obedience would work. We looked at a few weeks ago, right from the inside out. That's a unique thing that only Jesus can do. Because you know as well as I do, it's really hard to change ourselves from the outside in. (laughs) Dare I say it's impossible to change ourselves from the outside in. Well, the new covenant promised that there would be an inside-out work, that obedience would work from the inside out, and it also promised that our sins would be completely forgiven. It says here that Christ will remember our lawless deeds no more. Now, is Christ forgetful? No, he's choosing to say, There's not an insufficiency in his character. Oh, well, no, he's saying, I will do this, which is actually the miracle that Christ has been able through his person and work and the sufficiency of his sacrifice to bring about this new covenant that promised a changed heart and complete forgiveness. He says the Holy Spirit was bearing witness to that through the speaking of those words. So there is no longer any offering for sin. That seems to be the clear-cut thing he's trying to tell them. 
there is no longer any need for an offering for sin. The shadow was insufficient in the beginning of verse chapter 10, right? Remember the insufficiency that was highlighted in the shadow? But all of that, by the time we get to the end here, gives way to the good thing, Jesus Christ, and he flips the script. He flips it on his head. You see, the old system cannot make us perfect. Christ changes our heart, sanctifying us. The old system can only remind us of our sins and the state that we're in. Christ's broken body and shed blood offers full forgiveness. This morning, I think it's best for us to just make it super simple. Here's the good thing. The good thing is that Christ was a once and for all sacrifice. That's the good thing. Now, you may be saying, well, pastor, how does, how does that encourage me? How does it change the way I walk out these doors today? How does that help me when the world falls apart? How does that help me when things aren't the way that they should be? Well, I have to admit, it's difficult for us to be in the shoes of these receiving this sermon the recipients of this sermon slash letter, it's hard for us to fully understand where they're at, what they're going through. You see, we are not tempted by the old system. We're not drawn back to the repeated sacrifices, the daily rituals of old. But I suspect, I suspect we have our own repeated sacrifices. I suspect we have our own daily rituals that we gravitate having greater confidence in than Christ once and for all sacrifice. If we took human effort at its pinnacle to atone for sin and realize that it was insufficient, who do you think you are? <laughs> who do you think that you are? to be able to do what Christ once and for all sacrifice has done. Sure, maybe it's not the shedding of blood, going to all the sacrifices, all the daily rituals. Maybe it's not that, but I wonder what it is. What, what gives you greater confidence that you have been saved, redeemed, loved, cared for, looked after, granted forgiveness? You see, Christ alone sanctifies us before God. And he continues to sanctify our lives as we live for him. Maybe if it's not connected, let me just, let's do a quick assessment, okay? What do you do when you sin? A quick assessment. Dad, things weren't as they were supposed to be when you got home. You, you flew off the handle maybe a little bit, right? Mom, you lost patience. Said a few things you wish you wouldn't have said. Maybe at work for some of you, didn't treat certain coworker like you should. Maybe if you're in the midst of your studies, learning to get to wherever it is you want to go. What do you do when you sin, what, how do you handle that moment? It sounds simple, but I think it might tell you a lot. Do you have a tendency to work harder at the doing good 
so you can make the guilt go away? Do you have a tendency to just minimize, look beyond it, and not deal with it? I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll do more and, and I'll feel better about myself. And the Lord will be pleased with me. I challenge you to really consider what do you do when you sin? Perhaps here's another good assessment. What do you do when following Christ costs you something? Maybe not as easy to, to work through, but when following Christ costs you something, what's your tendency? When following Christ means when you go to the water cooler, if you have those at your work, and people go, cost you relationships. When it costs you difficult conversation with family members who can't understand why you do what you do. When it costs you to choose less because you feel like that would bring more honor and glory to the Lord. When it causes you to be humble and patient when you know you could just fix it right now. What do you do when following Christ costs you something? The potential to cost your job because of lack of integrity. The potential to have to rearrange your friendships because it's just not healthy for you. What do you do when following Christ costs you something? Do you have a tendency to soften that commitment so that you don't look too different? Do you have a tendency to shrink back and maybe not be as diligent because of fear of man? And I can say that because I get it. This truth, these realities of Jesus, remind us that we can be assured that Christ's work upon the cross has paid the price. We can be assured this morning, we can be confident this morning that following Christ is worth it. We can be assured this morning that no matter how we are perceived or looked at or called a fool for following Christ, it is worth it. The preacher has given a tremendous amount of evidence, has pulled it all together and says, he is good. He has laid the sacrifice once and for all. He has done that so that we can be reconciled unto God, that God receives us through the person and work of Christ. For me, a struggle often as I was growing up is pleasing people and having people really like me. I had the realization one day that if Christ shed blood and broken body, that God receives me through the person and work of Christ, what does it matter what you think? What does it, what does it matter how others might perceive us? How does this help us today that we in full confidence and trust can live for him? 
So when we do sin, we quickly run to repentance, not to gain salvation, but because our hearts hurt. We have sinned against our Heavenly Father. We go because of relationship established through Christ alone. We go dependent, confident to the Father because Christ is who he said he was and Christ has done the work. We go dependent and confident because Christ has done the work. Let's pray. Father God, oh, I feel like for hours we could just say the same thing over and over again and it'd just be even more glorious every time we look at it because you are just, you're just that wonderful um, and Christ's work is just so comprehensive. It's hard for us to fathom all that's been done through Christ. So this morning we come and we rejoice that the good thing we have is that Christ indeed has been sacrificed once and for all, that the broken body and shed blood of Jesus has brought about our salvation, that we have been made holy in your presence, and that person and work of Christ is continually working on us. So Father, help our confidence to grow um, deeper. Help our faith to cling ever tighter to Christ this morning. Father, if there are some among us who don't know the person and work of Christ, that they may grab someone before they leave. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.